This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. Morning, Redemption Tempe. It's good to be here with you. Uh, my name is Benjamin Denson. I'm a pastor here. I'm a pastor of Redemption Communities, which are the, the term we give to our home groups, our small groups. And I'm also a pastor over Sundays. And uh, I, I originally hail from the, the lovely and cold land of Minnesota. My wife, Lacey, and I, and we, we have a cute little daughter named Zoe. She's four years old. Uh, so we've been down here for a couple of years, and uh, it's, it just it struck me, it strikes me often, actually, on Sundays, but just how good this place is, how good this church is, you as a people, we as a people, and what God has done and, and is doing here. And I'm just very thankful uh, to, to be here in general, and I hope you are too. And I want to share just two things quickly before we jump into the text. We've got a lot to cover in Mark 9 as we continue. Uh, but, but the two things are this. One, uh, Jim mentioned Redemption Kids and the, and the need for volunteers. And I just want to put, a, put an extra plug on that from, from my life. Uh, like I said, I, we have Zoe, our little four-year-old daughter, and she goes to Redemption Kids. She goes to those classrooms. Redemption Kids, as a children's ministry, is not just average or even above average. It, it is phenomenal. They're so good at what they do. Caitlin's a fantastic director of her people. She's got an amazing team. And, and just to give you a little picture of that, what I mean by that is not just that they care for the children well and protect them and give them little fruit snacks instead of sugar snacks or whatever, which is all true and good, uh, depending on who you're talking to, I suppose. Uh, but but uh, they, they teach our kids about the gospel. They do. Uh, the, uh, about uh, a few months ago, Zoe brought home this little chalkboard. And they, they teach kids about the gospel so much that it encourages me as an adult. These aren't just little piddly kid things. These are, these are really wonderful gospel good news things. And she brings home this chalkboard. I said, oh, Zoe, what's that? Was that a little sketch thing you guys drawn and something like that? She says, no, we were, we were writing our sins on the chalkboard. And then we erase them because Jesus erases our sins. Like, <laughs> children's ministry people come up and preach and just be like, amen, that's good. <laughs> Man, isn't that great? That's so good. These little kids are they're getting it. They're, they're, they're engaged and they're, they're seeing these pictures of Jesus' love. So, so please consider that. Consider um, the volunteer opportunities there. It's such a great way to, uh, to serve. It's such a privilege to be able to shape the lives of, of beautiful little children and to bless, bless their parents so well. We never, ever want to turn away a family. Um, from, from, our, from our children's ministry. Secondly, just, just this, on the same tune of thankfulness, uh, I was going to say this anyway, every time I, I get up here to preach, I, I, I like it for the most part, love it, hate it, it's, 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 but it's hard work. It is, and, and so I just want to say, we are really blessed to have Ricardo Stewart as our lead pastor who does most of the preaching. He is a great pastor, he is a good preacher, and, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm so thankful for that, that he brings the word of God with faith every week, week in, week out, when he's preaching, uh, doing the bulk of the preaching. So I'm just saying, uh, join me in that thankfulness of how blessed we are to hear the gospel week in and week out in such great ways and to have proclaimed. And then uh, I'm really glad that we could pray for him and his family in this, in this tough time that we're going through. So keep them in your prayers and, and join me in being thankful for all that God is doing here, all his grace. Okay, Mark 9, continuing. Um, last week was the, the 4th of July weekend. Uh, not all of you maybe were here because of the, the holiday. Uh, Will Bukarevich, one of our pastoral residents, preached on the end of Mark 8 and the very beginning of Mark 9, um, chapter, verse 1. Now we're jumping into Mark, Mark 9, verses 2 through 42. Yeah, and it's a lot. So it's 41 verses. So we have to go pretty quick. 
I can't hit every, every verse and I'm going to have to bounce a little bit. So I'm gonna, I know you guys are loving and gracious and you'll give grace to say uh, can't go through every verse all the time. But before we do that, because we're going through a lot of verses, let, let's grab some Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand nice and high and keep it raised. And, and uh, these good-looking volunteers will give you a Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please keep this. This is yours now, okay? It's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God. We want you to read it and dwell on it and rejoice in it. Uh, it is God's revelation to us. So, um, like I said, going to be going to be moving along fairly quickly. Let's let's just do a brief recap of where we've been. Mark one through eight. Uh, what we've seen Jesus do, okay? We've seen him now perform numerous miracles, teach with authority and wisdom, confound the religious leaders, both the liberal religious ones and the conservative religious ones. We've seen Jesus in power make a crippled hand well again and, 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 and make deaf ears to hear and blind eyes to see. We've seen him rise up against demonic powers, cast out demons, overwhelm them and cast them out, freeing those who were oppressed by Satan and his demons. They're free because of the power of God through Jesus Christ, as we've seen so far. We've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, and if that wasn't enough, then he goes and feeds 4,000 more. Same thing. Miraculous. We've seen Jesus just say a word, peace be still, and the storm is calmed. Literally control over nature and the storms. And we've seen Jesus walk on water. Uh, We've seen Jesus, at the beginning, baptizing the Jordan River, which forms that border of Israel, Sort of an inauguration of his ministry, the beginning of his ministry. And what happens? The dove comes down, the Holy Spirit has a dove, and the Father's voice speaks, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, this is my beloved Son. It's sort of a, a divine stamp of approval. Now go, go and do the ministry that I sent you to, as Father's saying to the Son. We've seen all of that, we've seen the, the Trinity there present, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and now we come here to Mark 9. After all of these amazing things, these actions that Jesus has done, these healings, these miracles, how he's preached the kingdom of God, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. He preaches this message and we come to Mark 9. And, and Mark, Mark 9 is sort of like, if you would think of this whole story, of the story of Mark, as a teeter-totter in a way. At the beginning, it was an upward climb. Jesus, his popularity was growing. His disciples were excited. They're just kicking butt against the kingdom of the devil and they're kicking butt against sin and death and the things that were not supposed to be, like people being crippled, like people being sick, like leprosy. Those things, when they come in contact with the reality of God, they're healed, they're changed, they're made back into their original intention of being good and full and whole. And so we see these things happening. People are excited. It's, it's, like, it's like your team's doing well. People are clapping and the crowd's getting excited. And we're walking up. And then this, you know, they call it the fulcrum, right? Like the middle of the teeter-totter. And now we're going to start seeing this teeter-totter go the other way. Because Jesus comes in and takes, takes the stuff. I'm excited. Human excitement. This is good. We like authority. We like power. We're, we're, taking, we're taking the whole kingdom back. We're taking it back from Rome. And then Jesus messes it up, right? He starts talking about his death. And the disciples are just totally bewildered. Bewildered, even upset. Peter confesses in Mark Mark 8, 29. But who do you say that I am, says Jesus? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Correct answer. Right, proper answer. Except Peter doesn't really understand what the Christ means. The fullness of God in his anointed Messiah. He doesn't get fully what that means and what that will bring. And then Jesus says, but I'm going to die. And Peter says, whoa, 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 Jesus, come here. Come here. 
seriously, you're, you're causing trouble for all the disciples and the people. You've got to stop this, this God talk. Peter sort of takes it on himself as, as, the, as some sort of PR firm, you know, the Christ PR firm. He's saying, hey, let me help you out with this because it's not good. And, and for that, he gets called Satan. So, <laughs> so not, not a great idea. I love Peter. I love him so much because uh, he fails so much. And, uh, and so do I. And so do we. We get to see God love him through all of his failures. Get behind me, Satan. He's rebuked. Your, things, your, your mind's not on things above, but things that are below. They're looking for power, for earthly power. And now we move here. Mark 9. The transfiguration is our first section. And so here we are. The transfiguration. We're going to see more and more of this Peter talk starting to push downward. The descent into things that are going to be hard. Instead of the way of fame and recognition and authority and power and, and what they thought of as justice, we're going to see a way downward into pain, onto the way of suffering. And it's confusing, it's bewildering, and it's angry, and it, it makes them despair, and yet this is the truth of God. This is the thing that will happen, that must happen. And so let's, let's get into this. Mark 9 uh, Mark 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking to Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they, were no, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So in, in this first part, this first section, we see something. That, by the way, let me, let me just say this too, where we're going. Uh, we're talking about faith. We're talking about faith in all of Mark 9. Belief. Do you believe in God? Not just in your perception of who God is, but in the true and living God that is being revealed through this holy word, through the scripture, through Jesus Christ. Do you believe in this God? Do you believe in the Christ for who he really is? And so we have faith. Faith is a thread. And this first part, it's this. It's faith. What is faith? It's trusting in Jesus, the divine and suffering Savior. Both hard things to get your head around. Both hard things to see. But the transfiguration helps to point to this. It really makes it clear who is Jesus. The first section, Mark 1 through 8, that whole side of that teeter-totter climbing upwards was showing who Jesus was, his identity. And there's inklings that start coming in. This, this guy is more than just another prophet or a priest. I, I, think, I think he may be the Christ. And even that, they don't want to say it. I think the Christ may actually be the Son of God. That's what's showing us this first half. Now we move into the second part, which is really the purpose. What is this purpose as we walk down that, the, the downward side of this teeter-totter before, before he's resurrected in glory? So we go up to the mountain. High mountain. Mountains are, mountains are very significant in the Old Testament. What's going on here? After six days. Okay, so Mark rarely says anything about numbers. Let's just, let's just take a look. Let's go a throwback. We're going to hit some Old Testament passages that are really significant. Um, this is Exodus 24, 15 and 16. You can just read along on the screen. Um, and so here's, here's what it says. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called on Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And maybe you think, okay, well, is seven days significant? Yes. 
Creation, six days. Seventh day, God enjoys it. He rests. Here, six days, the cloud, the presence of God, of the Lord covers the mountain, and on the seventh day, he speaks to Moses. And here, after six days, six days, after Jesus talks about taking up his cross, he takes Peter, James, and John up this high mountain, and he becomes glorious. He's transfigured before them. His clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I like that little, like this little, I don't know, this little tag that Mark throws in there. Like, and by the way, his clothes were super white. We're talking like supernatural tide white. Like it was, it was intense bleach. They were glowing. And, and, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. So, so what's happening here? Well, let's, let's answer this question. Why Moses and Elijah? What's going on with that? Why these two? Both were prophets and mediators between God on the mountain and the people below. Both had experiences with God on the mountain. Moses at Mount Sinai, after the exodus, after he leads them out of Egypt, goes up on the mountain, gets the law of God, the commandment of God, hears the voice of God. And Elijah with, with God on Mount Horeb, it's called. It was hundreds of years later. Elijah goes up there. He's battling these false prophets who are leading the people to serve false gods, the people of Israel. And they build two altars. I don't know if you remember this, this story. You've heard this. And, and uh, they cut up a bull and they say, okay, true God test. This is, this is a pretty simple one. Ca- call to your gods, and, or your god or gods, and whatever one drops fire from heaven and consumes the, the altar, that's the real God. And so Elijah goes up against not just 10 or 100 prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, of all these foreign pagan gods, false gods. And they cry and they dance and jump around and they start cutting themselves and weeping and, and calling out. And Elijah, in a great, in a great way, a great sarcastic tone, prophets know sarcasm really well, um, he, he, you know, he says, oh, oh, well, maybe, maybe he didn't hear you. Maybe you have to yell louder. And I just imagine them like, getting taunted and then just still yelling loud, like, ah! And then you know, maybe he didn't hear you. Maybe he's relieving himself. Like, that's what Elijah says. And maybe he fell asleep. He's taking a little nap. And uh, I'm paraphrasing. And, and, um, and, you know, he's taunting them and nothing happens. Nothing happens. And then what happens with Elijah? The true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the living God. He says, Lord, show me power. And boom, fire drops from heaven consumes his altar that was all wet with gallons and gallons of water. It's impossible to burn naturally. God's fire comes down. So, so Moses on the mountain and Elijah on the mountain, both hearing from God, seeing the power of God. And now, Jesus on the mountain. Jesus, the voice of God coming through, the power and presence of God in a cloud. That's what it says here. A cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Both Elijah and Moses were deliverers of God's people. Moses from the bondage of Egypt and Elijah from the bondage of idolatry. That their own king had allowed. It was terrible, evil things. Both were deliverers. And we, and we see their role here next to Jesus. He, the ultimate deliverer. That's what it points to. Not just a prophet, but the true and better prophet. Not just a priest to stand in the gap between the people of God and God's holiness, but the ultimate priest who will make the sacrifice once for all and will bring the people to God, who will lead them to God. Let's, let's look at Malachi 3 and Malachi 4 because this, is, this really puts a point on it. 
Moses and Elijah. Malachi 3, 1 and 2 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the, of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. Who can stand before the Lord? Well, through Jesus, as the mediator of the glory of God, Peter, James, and John, sinful men, not run in fear, though they were terrified. Look at Peter's reaction. Not to take off, but to build tents, but to stay. I, God, your presence is so wonderful, so glorious. I, I want to I stay here. I want to hang out with you. I'll make tents. I'll make a tent for you. I'll, I'll run over to REI. I'll grab some half domes. I'll get, a, get us three tents. You all get one. We'll hang out. We'll have a campfire. It's, he wants to stay in the presence of God. He wants to stay in the holiness of God. I, I think this is, this is telling, too. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a quote about holiness. And I, I, really, I really love how he says this. He says, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. Everything in us is wanting to be with God. Lots of times people don't even know that. But we were built, we as creatures, to be with our creator. We were built to be whole and to be in the presence of holiness. And, and this is what's happening here. They get a taste, they get a glimpse of what it would be like when God makes all things new through Jesus. So he says, let's build a tent. And tent is just actually a word for tabernacle. So he's thinking, he's confused, he doesn't know what to say. He's, 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 a, he's a little bit shaken. But, but something from, from all the days of him knowing the scriptures, uh, let, let's build a tabernacle, let's build a tent, let, let's hang out here. The presence of God should, should be here. That's, that's part of his reaction. And the cloud is just one more signifier that God is on the mountain, that this is the mountaintop experience. This is beginning to be the fulfillment of all those ones in the Old Testament. And the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So just a, a quick observation. And the first time we, see, we hear from God, Jesus' baptism, right? And, and so the dove descends in the Holy Spirit and the, the Father speaks, but he speaks directly to Jesus. This time, the presence, the cloud, is, is the Holy Spirit descending. And the Father speaks, but he speaks to the disciples. I'm going to share the presence of God with this world in a way that has never, ever been seen before. And no tent will hold it. Because the true tabernacle is my son, Jesus Christ. And when my presence comes from him, through him, as a mediator, as a high priest, you will share in the presence, and I will give you my spirit. That's what's going on here. They're not consumed. Though the full holiness of God, they're not consumed because it is through Jesus Christ. And then faith. Elijah and Moses fade away. Right? That's the end of it. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. And uh, that's because Elijah and Moses, called by God, saints of God, ones who trusted deeply and, and followed God, as, as godly and as holy as they were, they're nothing compared to the, the true Savior. They're nothing compared to the true and ultimate prophet of Jesus. They fade away in light of his glory and his presence. And then they still have doubts. That's why they ask about Elijah in that next section. They're still not sure. Uh, Peter, Peter isn't, um, he's not as dumb as he looks. 
Uh, it, meaning, meaning that like he got rebuked. He got called Satan earlier. He's like, ooh, that. I don't want to get called Satan again. It's not good. The guys laugh at me when Jesus calls me Satan. So I don't want that anymore. Uh, but I'm still not comfortable with this death thing. So then Jesus says, um, he charged me to tell no one what they'd seen, verse 9, until the Son of Man had arisen from the dead. Ooh, that word dead again. Fathers, fathers and disciples a lot. How, how, is this, how are you going to reclaim our nation for us? political power, throw off Rome, raise us up on thrones. How are we going to have this glorious kingdom like David and Solomon once had? Again, if you die. And so they have this trouble, this problem with him. And so they ask this question, why didn't the scribes say that, that first Elijah must come? You know, they're just trying to lead him into something to say, no, no, I, you might be confused. You're not going to die. And Jesus explains to them that they did whatever they want to Elijah, and they'll do whatever they want the Son of Man, he must suffer. Elijah here is, is a foretaste of what John the Baptist actually fulfilled. John the Baptist, we read earlier in Mark, Mark 6, he was beheaded. They did to him whatever they pleased. He prepared the way. Elijah came to, to restore all things, which I think is a way of saying making the road straight for the Lord to walk in and be presented. And they killed him. And guess what? When you bring the reality of God crashing into the reality of the sinful world, violence happens. And they're going to kill Jesus too. But he's not going to stay dead. That's what he says after I rise. They're confused still. And then we move from there in the mountain down this next part. The, the healing of a boy. Um, this segment, the first one saying faith in the divine and suffering Savior of God. This is faith that is not yet complete. Our faith is not complete. It's not perfect. Until he comes down from the mountain and people are arguing. And in verse 19, he asks them what you're arguing about. And they say, this person, this, this man is possessed by a demon. The disciples cannot cast it out. And he says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Does that, does that sound like an echo of something? So Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He meets God, the presence of God in the cloud. The, the voice of God booming. He gives, God speaks to him directly, gives him commandments. Moses, glowing with the glory of God, comes down the mountain. And you, you can imagine how thrilled he would be. Look, God is with us. God has not left us. God is for us. He is loving us by giving us commandments to show us the way to follow him. And they're worshiping a statue. That's, that's the story of Israel coming down the mountain. And this glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And they come down the mountain, and here we are. Faithless people, once again. The same problem. And we'll come back to that in a second. But as we move forward, Jesus has an interaction with this man. This father. The boy is convulsing. The boy is possessed by a demon. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus says. This is verse 21. And the father said, from childhood, it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. There's another account, there's a lot of accounts, but one especially in Mark 1 with a leper. And the leper says, I know you're able to heal me from my leprosy, if you will. So that, that leper in Mark 1 doesn't question the ability and the power of Jesus. He knows he can do it. He knows he's able to do it. The only question left is, will God show me mercy? 
Jesus looks at him and touches him and says, I will be clean. And the leper's healed. But here it's different. Here it's a man questioning the ability of God. If you can, I don't even know if you can do it. But he's desperate. This man is, is he's desperate. He's coming to Jesus, but he also has doubts. He doesn't know. I, I don't know if you can do it or not. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, if you can, and he says, all things are possible for one who believes. But then the father cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. I believe. I believe. Help my doubts. And it is so beautiful that in Jesus' righteous rebuke of him to say, you don't question the ability of God to heal and to make all things right again, he then turns and has mercy. And he heals the boy. And he tells the disciples at the end of this, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But prayer. And the disciples are confused, like, well, why couldn't we do it? And by prayer, which is, which is seriously like the, the least glamorous way to drive out demons. I don't know if you know this, you know, the, the, the ten best ways to drive out demons. Number six, I couldn't believe it. You know, it's like the clickbait style. Um, <laughs> you won't believe number six. Uh, you know, on that ten best ways, prayer is not one of them. Not cool, because prayer can be done from anywhere. Prayer can be done behind a closed door. Prayer can be done in private. There's no sort of glory or power like, check this out. Check out this Benny Hinn kind of action, you know, like the, the Pentecostal style of casting. People are falling and the, the bodies are hitting the floor and all of that. And you're, you're kind of triumphant. We rule. We have the authority of God. We're taking it all back. But prayer. Prayer is just not a sexy way to cast, cast out demons. It's just not. But this shows us something really significant. Come down from the mountain, they run into a faithless generation and just carries right through. Who should be crying out, help my unbelief? We should. The disciples should. They're not getting it. They're not trusting in Jesus. They like using Jesus' name as a sort of a calling card, as a badge of power and authority. But, but they don't get it. It's not about just saying his name. It's about believing in who he is, the Christ, the Son of God. It teaches them that by saying this kind can only be driven out by prayer. And then we come to, I think, really the hinge of all of this, that sort of teeter-totter, the middle there as, as it turns and it becomes more and more explicit. This is actually, this is the second time that Peter direct, or, sorry, Jesus directly talks about his death and resurrection, but it's the third time he mentions it. And I mention it again and again. Um, it's, it's been said that the, the Gospel of Mark especially, but all the Gospels, are really passion narratives with an extended introduction. Passion being the word, not just like for your, your hopes and dreams, passion being the word actually for suffering. The narrative of Jesus' suffering. That's what they are. They're really about the last seven days of his life, essentially, marching to Jerusalem and suffering, and then an extended introduction. This is the crux of it all, and we, the, the teeter-totter starts pointing downward, and we start walking down, and Jesus says, They went on from there, and passed through Galilee, and did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. We arrive here at the gospel that Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a death on the cross, really died, really bled, was really beaten and tortured and humiliated. He 
really happened in history. And he hung on that cross and he died. And he was perfect. He was innocent. The only real innocent person that's ever walked this world. And he took on our sins. But he didn't stay dead. It's glorious. glorious. It's awesome. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And they don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't like the death part. They certainly don't get the death and then rising again. Like, what is going on? See, what he's teaching them is that faith, true faith, is believing in the Son of God as divine and as a suffering Savior, as a suffering servant from Isaiah 53. That, that true faith is not complete. Your faith is not yet complete. Our faith is, and he teaches that as he walks through and, and, and sees the doubts of that Father and really gives us a prayer. The Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief where we have our doubts, where we have these dark corners of our heart. And here it comes to this. Faith is believing that suffering is necessary. That Jesus must go through, on the way to salvation, he must go through the way of suffering. In, in Jerusalem, there's a street, and it, it's traditionally held that this is the street that Jesus actually walked on as he carried the cross um, probably not historically true because it's been changed a few times in the last hundreds and hundreds of years, but it's called Via Dolorosa. And that's Latin for the way of suffering. That was the way that Jesus was going to bring us to salvation, was through suffering. And guess what? When we follow him, we will get to glory, perfect glory, no more tears, no more pain. But before then, we're going to suffer with Jesus, too. That's what this life is, and, and certainly we in this room know what that means. Maybe you now feel that. You've been hurt, or you've hurt someone. You, you sort of, you get stumbled up by all of the junk and ugliness and brokenness in the world. You, you feel that touch your own life, your own soul. You see it in your relationships with your family or with friends. You see it in the brokenness of, of systems and your coworkers and government and all these ways that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And what that does, that can, that can, that can bring doubt. It can bring doubt to us. I want to just take a second to say, for you here uh, who, who say with that man, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. If you feel right now the doubt, some, some doubts, I'm just not sure. Is this, is this real? Is God real? If your doubts are, can he really do this? Is he really sovereign? That's one of the big ones. Or if you say, I think he is, but then even a harder question, but, but does he really love us? Because if he loved us, why would this junk be happening? We get to read this. We get to see that though, though we are doubters, though sin has shadowed our hearts, God does not cast off the doubter. He shows us mercy. That is gospel truth. That is good news for all of us. We have, or we are, or we will doubt. And I just want to say with open arms here, Redemption Tempe, we, we are sinners. But we're not sinners alone. All who call in the name of Jesus, we are sinners redeemed. And those shadows from the world are going to touch us. And they're going to, they're going to get our, over our hearts and over our minds. And guess what? The gospel saves us from sin. The gospel saves us from death. The gospel saves us from our doubts. You don't have to have perfect faith to be saved. Jesus is the one who is faithful for us. 
There's not 10 or 20 or 100 steps that I, I'm going to give you to say, here is the clean formula to go from doubtful to certain. There's just one thing to do, one thing. Look to Jesus. Look to him, both his suffering and his resurrection, his glory. So for me, that just that fills my heart with hope. That even when I mess up stupidly, even when I make mistakes like Peter does, and it happens way too often, even when I just think, ah, I don't know, I don't know if I believe this. Jesus still loves us, and he fights for us, and he's faithful when we are not. So, faith is believing that suffering must be necessary. It's part of the gospel. The only way that, that Jesus could deliver us from certain death is to reach into death. And become death, and become sin, so that he could rise from it and conquer it. That's the only way it was going to happen, which is also why Jesus needed a body. He couldn't do it as a spirit. He put on flesh. He came and dwelt among us. He came and literally built his tent among us. That's what that says. That's what John 1 means. So here we are, this beautiful gospel, this terribly confusing gospel. They don't not understand him. They don't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. In the next section, we see this. We see this played out. And they came to Capernaum, and, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is uh, verse 34, by the way. And he sat down and called the 12. I, I, just, I see this, uh, and I think this is probably an accurate statement. So he's like, hey, guys, what were you discussing on the way? And they're like, oh, just... Uh, <laughs> Peter was trying to get us to illustrate. <laughs> Peter's fault. And he says, he sighs. All right, pull up chairs. Peter, James, John, you guys are in the front. All right, you sit here in the front. Let's get to it. I'll teach you again. You remember, you remember, Peter, James, and John, how you saw the glory of God in my face on the mountain. You, you haven't forgotten that, have you? No. You know, it's just, it's, that, it's like that's what it feels like. These children who aren't listening, they want to be the greatest. They are given the inheritance of the kingdom of God. They are given the riches of heaven through Jesus. And they want to be number one. That's what they're arguing about. Who's going to be number one? Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. And so I have this question then, what's the deal? What's the connection between um, being a servant of all and a child? Like, what? what's, what's going on here? Because they're not, I mean, it's not explicit what's, what, the, what, the, what the connection is here. I, I, think, I think it's this. Children are wonderful. They're a gift most of the time. And they, <laughs> as much as they bless us with joy and laughter and happiness, and sanctification, they take, and they take, and they take. That's, that's what kids do. Babies. Babies don't care about your work schedule and if it's convenient to wake up every two hours for, for four months in a row or not. They'll just cry because they need something. They need us. They take and take and take. Guess what? Parents are happy to give. This is our child. We love this child. We'll do anything with this child. We'll die for this child. It's a taste of the love of our Father and that Father for us in heaven. And so these kids take and take and take. And I think that's what he's saying. And look, here's this child. Receive this child who will not bring you fame, who will not give you money, 
will definitely not give you money. And, <laughs> and will take and take and take and will need from you and will be desperate from you and who will occasionally drive you crazy. Here's this child, and when you receive this child, when you become a servant, you become great in the kingdom. When you choose to step back from the front of the line and let others go, that's real greatness. And guess what? Jesus says to them, I'm going to teach you what it means to be a servant. I'm going to show you what real love looks like. And it's not pretty. And it's through the Via Dolorosa, through the way of suffering. That's what I'm going to show you. But at the end of that road of suffering, there is the city of God, and it is beautiful and glorious, and it is shining, and there are no more tears and no more pain. And all who unite go there. All who unite to Jesus by faith go there with him. So... Uh, just, to, just to illustrate that a little bit, this idea of the greatest and servant of all. Uh, like I said, uh, my daughter's four. Um, all kids love their treats, love their ice cream or their cookie. And, uh, and we, we as parents love to give those things to them within reason. Just, yeah, no, don't worry. Not, not, not too much sugar. But, but um, she does this really funny thing. And I didn't teach her this. I'm pretty sure my wife didn't teach her this. Uh, when, when she's going to share something, she has to share it. Right? We're teaching her to share. She chooses to share most of the time, but we make her share. And so dad also likes treats and sugar, and uh, she gets a nice big cookie or an ice cream cone or something, and I, I get a bite. I say, oh, you want to share with me a little bite or something? And she says, yeah. And she, she never gives me the cone, by the way. It's this really strategic <laughs> way. She holds on to it. She reaches out, and when I lean over to take a bite, she pulls it back. <laughs> she says, just a little one. <laughs> Just a little bite. Okay, she's making this agreement. She's, got, she's controlling the ice cream. So funny, it makes me laugh. And, and at the same time, isn't it funny to kind of back up from that and say, like, we're the one who provides all this stuff. We're the one who gives it to her. We give it to her joyfully. And even then, she wants to keep it for herself. She doesn't, she doesn't know that we'll provide everything we can and God will provide for us. And in the same way, the disciples, they, they, they get all of this blessing from Jesus and they watch him and they watch his authority and his power and his mercy and his patience with them. And they still want to just keep their ice cream. It's just it's like us. We, we automatically go to, I want to be number one. I want to be on the throne. And lastly, we have this, this piece. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons, verse 38, in your name, and we, we tried to stop him. Because he was not following us. Right? That's, that's important, right? He was, they don't say he was not following you. They don't say he was, he was not glorifying your name, Jesus. He was not praising God. No, no. They say he was not following us. And again, if you want to put on that little child's voice, it's kind of like standing their feet. He's not following us, Jesus. They're whining. They're crying. They're, they're angry that he's not following us. And really, the upshot is that they're jealous. They're jealous that somebody else who's not in our cool Christian club, who doesn't talk the way we talk or dress the way we dress, who doesn't know the secret handshake, how can that person be doing works in the name of God and it's working? It's not fair. That's what, that's what it feels like, right? It's not fair, God. We're the ones who are walking with you. Right? Even though again and again and again and again, the disciples just don't get it. They're obstinate. They're obtuse. They're just they're, they're stubborn and they don't see it in their, their eyes have all this haze over them. And, he, and Jesus says, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For 
Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I, I think, at least for me, it's, it's a convicting thing to hear that. It's really easy for me to sort of draw some clean lines, kind of have a spreadsheet of the best kind of Christians, a hierarchy. Number one, everyone at Redemption Tempe. Number two, a few other churches around. Number three, and it goes down, it goes down, now I'm like, and, and, and we see other Christians, other followers of Jesus, other believers in God, also imperfect, just like us. We see God doing th- things through them, and it makes us upset. <sighs> I don't like that. I don't like their theological stance, Arminians or Calvins or whatever one you want to choose, especially like this one, I think, gets us pretty quickly. You, you meet someone, maybe you become friends with them, you have some good discussions, you have some good spiritual talk with them, like, oh, this is great, they're a believer, it's really, really good to know you, a neighbor, a coworker, and then you find out that they're a Democrat, and you're like, what? <laughs> How? <laughs> or conservative, or, or, or Republican, okay? Yes, yes, but I, But seriously, have you ever had that happen where, where something came up in someone and, and it was the wrong label? I, ooh, I don't like that. That's, how, how, could you, how could you be a Christian and blank, 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 fill it in, right? But Jesus says, God's working through those people. Yes, imperfect. Yes, they don't see it all. Just like we are imperfect. Just like we don't see it all. If they're not against us. They are for us. And I really, really love how wise Jesus is for the one who's not, he doesn't say me, for the one who's not against me, it's for me. He says us. Even, even in the, the real, essentially, stupidity of the disciples to not see it, he brings them in closer. Come close to me. I'm with you still. You've made a lot of mistakes. You're going to make a lot more. You especially, Peter. And I'm still with you. And anyone who's not against us, us, is for us. So welcome them in, invite them in. So, just to wrap it up here, that God has given faith to everyone, to all kinds, all kinds of different people, and it doesn't fit our category. That, that faith, our faith is, is, is not about us, it's about serving others. We see, we see in the gospel that faith always, true faith in some God, leads through the way of suffering. We go through death with Jesus before we get to eternal life with him. We see that, that our faith is not complete, just like with the, the boy and with the boy's father who says, I believe, help my unbelief. And we see that faith, true faith, is believing in Jesus, the divine and suffering Savior of God's people, of us. Like the story of Moses and the Exodus, or of Elijah and the idolatry of Israel, Jesus goes up to the mountain to show his glory, to show the glory of God. And when he comes down the mountain, he finds the one who's supposed to know him, the ones, and he says, oh, faithless generation. And even the man who's desperate to help save his son, that man doubts. He says, if you're able. And Jesus loves that man through his doubts, despite his doubts, through his imperfect mustard seed faith. I, I believe, I believe. Help my unbelief. Please help my unbelief. Help my son. I've got nowhere else to go. Help my unbelief. I believe. And, and, and if you look at the disciples, I think, and the reactions for these sections, here's what it looks like. Transfiguration, the disciples, confused. What's going on? Don't like that. Next one, the healing of the boy. They don't get it. They don't have faith. They're not dependent on God. They like just using the authority of his name. In the death of Jesus, they move away from suffering, not toward it. 
When, when Jesus says to be servant of all, they, they argue and clamor to be number one. That's what they want. They're selfish. And finally, in the last section, they're jealous that other people, that God is using other people who don't fit into their category of what a good follower looks like. And this paints a picture of the truth, as I said earlier, that the prayer of that father, it's our prayer, brothers and sisters. We believe, God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Meet us by your grace, by your amazing grace, and help our unbelief. And where we have doubts, Lord, shine the light of your glory into the corners of our hearts that are dark and help our unbelief. And Jesus just like he did with that man and the boy, he says yes and he shows us mercy. And we get to say this, I think the Apostle Paul got this. This man who was complicit in the murder of Christians. Jesus shows up to him on the road. He's radically converted, first he's blinded and then the scales fall off. And one of the early things he wrote, the first things he wrote was a letter to Galatians. And, it's, and in that letter he says this, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Because Jesus has gone to the cross, the way of suffering, because he has risen from the dead, the cross is empty. We need to rejoice and pray this with Paul. The life we now live is by faith in the Son of God, because he loved us, because he gave himself up for us. And we can turn the servants of all. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you that you are the God who meets us in all of the darkness and in all of the doubt, in all of the hurt and all of the junk that we see in this world and all the stuff that we inflict on others. You take the brokenness on yourself, Jesus. You make it whole again. You take the sin, you become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, you reach into death. You take the way of suffering so that you can rise again and lead us triumphantly. God, this world is difficult and dark and conflicted, and it is hard to believe in you, Jesus. We believe and help our unbelief that we can live this life in this flesh by faith in you, you who loved us and gave yourself for us. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.